This is WMPG and W281AC Gorham, Portland. Today is the first airing of a new show called Safe Space. We'll be on the air for two months while Home Dad takes a break. Safe Space, this is Aunt Dr. Ann Hallward, and Safe Space is a show that is dedicated to talking about subjects that are uncomfortable to talk about, whether that's because they're painful, vulnerable, or even shameful. It'll be half an hour, and I'll be interviewing uh, subjects who know about these, know, people who know about these subjects from the inside as well as professionally. My first guest is Mike Elkin. He's a family therapist and the author of the book Families Under the Influence. Our subject is about addictions and shame. Mike Elkin is a senior trainer for the Institute of Family, uh, for Internal Family Systems, and a family therapist in the greater Boston area. Welcome, Mike. Hi. Hi. So glad. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I wanted to start out our interview today by asking you um, what it is about addiction that makes it hard to talk about. Um, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. What is it about? What is it about addiction that makes it a subject that's hard for people to talk about? Uh, well... Uh, it has to do with the fuel, what fuels addiction, which is shame. Hmm. And shame is the most painful, excruciating experience available to human beings. Say more about that. And it, it, shame is the experience of having your badness or defectiveness or inadequacy witnessed, either by judgmental parts of you or by other people. And it really doesn't matter, for instance, if you, if you feel other people, you know, if you feel ashamed in front of other people, it really doesn't matter what they're thinking. Uh, what you're getting is a reflection back to you of your ideas about what's wrong with you. So even if they're not judging you... Yeah, even if they're not, or they're thinking about baseball scores, or they're, uh, you know, they're self-absorbed with what you're thinking about them... Uh, if you feel that, you, that what's wrong with you has been exposed to them, mm. uh, it's, it's incredibly painful. So in and everybody has parts of them that feel defective, inadequate, unlovable, wrong, incomplete. And, and most people are very good at keeping these parts and their ideas and feelings out of their awareness most of the time. And my guess is nobody who's listening to this is particularly grateful to me for mentioning this and reminding them of these parts, but everybody's got them. <laughs> uh, possibly with the exception of psychopaths and maybe, you know, realized avatars like, you know, Jesus or Buddha or... But I don't know anybody like that. Everybody I've met has this sense inside them that there's something terrible wrong with them. And when that sense, when the, the parts of them that feel that way get, get stimulated and feel exposed, that's what shame is. Uh-huh. So if we talk about something like addiction, which is connected I, to... I have feeling. to again say I'm, I'm really having trouble hearing you. Uh-huh. Okay. Let me talk a little bit closer. Does that sound better? Yeah. Okay. Glad you mentioned that. So given that everybody has these 
parts of them. Yeah. Um, if we start talking about something like addiction, which has this whole moral judgment about it, it kind of reinforces their sense of badness. Right. And there's a, a system of thought. In other words, there's a belief system which is very prevalent, uh, not only in this country, but I think in most Euro northern European countries. And part of that system of thought is that the belief that a good person is in control of themselves and pretty much in control of everything they should be in control of. And certainly that means their emotions and their appetites. Mm. So a person who is uh, accused of addiction is being accused of not being in control of their actions and appetites and being excessive and being bad. Yes. So that person feels shamed and there and also uh if a person is addicted that means they have very powerful parts who believe in order to just survive to get through the day they need something and when somebody is accused of addiction that uh, makes those parts that need that thing feel that their supply to it might be threatened. Mm. In other words, if you say to somebody, you're an alcoholic, what it means is they're supposed to stop drinking. Right. And if there are parts of them that really need alcohol, those parts think, oh my God, my supply of alcohol is being threatened. And... Uh, and they feel very much like somebody would feel if uh, they were in debt and uh, they were fired from their job. Right. Or uh, they depended on, you know, some agency for food, and the agency said, uh, we've got to stop feeding you. Right. So we're talking about a, real, a survival threat. Right. That's the way it feels, because... Uh, certain parts have learned to associate whatever a person is addicted to, and so people can be addicted to anything. Hmm. Uh, Say more. Give some examples of what might be something. Well, people can be addicted to making money. People can be addicted to admiration. People can be addicted to being responded to as sexually attractive. People can be addicted to uh, gambling. People can be addicted to anything at all, running uh, yoga, healthy eating. <laughs> right. So in other words, there are some people who have an addictive relationship to eating healthily. And if they find themselves in a situation where they don't have access to what they believe is healthy or uh, good food, they feel very much the same way uh, an alcoholic would feel uh, with no access to alcohol. And how would that be? So if we're saying that someone has an addictive relationship to healthy eating, right. what, uh, what uh, makes Certainly that? that's a big favorite, is people are addicted to a certain kind of relationship with other people. Yes, and so then what makes it addictive? How do you define... Okay, what, uh, yeah, what, what some, it's, in other words, uh, what I'm saying is addiction is a kind of relationship, and you can have that kind of relationship to anything. Yes, and it's a kind of relationship where you believe you need something in order to take care of the part of you that thinks it's defective? 
Right. And, and, and I have a whole thing about how addiction develops, but what I believe is that we develop addictive relationships to somebody or something. Uh, well, something that we have had an experience where we associate whatever that we're addicted to, to to the power to stop us from feeling shame or mm. the power to really change the way we experience shame. You know, one example I give is, you know, a teenage boy who's out on the street with a bunch of kids and he's pretty insecure and he's afraid that the popular kids are going to reject him. And... Uh, and they start passing this can of a liquid around, and as he drinks more of it, he discovers he becomes less, first of all, physically tense, and then the thoughts that he's going to be immediately rejected sort of go out of his mind, and he begins to feel comfortable and confident in the group, and therefore it, the, the more comfortable, confident parts of him begin to express themselves and say funny things, and and he gets good feedback from the other people around him. Right. And so essentially he has found something that seems to give him the power to turn himself into what he wants to be and also to uh, really lessen his experiences, experience of the parts of him that think he's inadequate or not good enough or uh, defective in some way. And uh, so 20 years down the pike, you know, when he's waking up in a detox and people are trying to convince him that alcohol is ruining his life, part of him knows that's true. But there's another part of him that associates drinking alcohol with the, the certain knowledge it doesn't have to be this bad and it can be better. Mm. And that he knows that it worked for him. Right. And therefore, there's this part of him that thinks that basically the way he can be safe and happy is to find a way to get alcohol to work for him again, because it knows it did. Right, and it doesn't and have an alternative. could happen if you, you know, feel unlovable and inadequate and somebody seems to love you or need you or want you for something. Right. Or you win a bet or you lose, you know, there's... The logic of this can be very indirect and tangled, but that's what I think happens, is people have an experience that with something that they, uh, it, it feels to them like it gives them the hope that things don't always have to be that bad and they don't always have to feel bad about themselves. And that gives us uh, an understanding for the power of it. I want to just say this is Safe Space. My name is Dr. Ann, and my guest today is Mike Elkin, family therapist who's speaking to us today about addiction and shame. So I want to follow up, Mike, by saying there is a paradox here, it seems, because on the one hand, the substance or this relationship seems to give a relief from shame, and yet so often the things that a person can be addicted to seem to generate more shame. They seem out of control and seem only to make it worse. Yeah, actually, always. I mean, one aspect of the addictive relationship is over time it generates more and more shame, more and more isolation. And, and your relationship to whatever you're addicted to, 
essentially whatever you're addicted to demands exclusivity. It demands that you uh, take this relationship over all other relationships. In fact, that's one way that you can tell you're addicted to something, is if when you are faced with a choice between your relationship to whatever you think you might be addicted to and being able to feel comfortable or tell the truth to people who are important in your life, and you find yourself choosing whatever you suspect you're addicted to, you're addicted to it. I see. So if you find yourself not telling the truth about it to someone you care about, that's when you know you've started to cross a line? That's, that's a really good indication. You know, in AA, if you go to an AA meeting, they have, at least many of them, I'm not sure this is still true, but they have a list of 22 things, uh, questions about your drinking, to, you know, f- for people to evaluate whether they are suffering from alcoholism or not. And, you know, do you drink in the morning, blah, blah, blah. And I have a one-question test. (laughs) Yes. And that question is, do you lie about your drinking? Mm. Because one of the if you lie to somebody in a personal relationship, what you're essentially saying to that person is, who I experience myself as being, I don't believe to be adequate to be in a relationship with you, so I'm going to pretend to be this other person who I hope you'll find acceptable. Uh-huh. Which means essentially you're giving up all your power in that relationship. And also what it means is whatever you get in that relationship doesn't belong to you. It belongs to whoever you're pretending to be. Uh-huh. Now, the other person may not know this at all, but you know it. Right, so inside you start to feel ashamed even more. So, for instance, if you and I were married, and I'm drinking a bottle of liquor every day, and you say, uh, did you have anything to drink today? And I say, oh, no, well, I had one drink. Immediately you become my enemy. You're like the police who are trying to catch me in a crime. Mm -hmm. And that what I know is if you really knew what I was doing, you wouldn't love me. Mm -hmm. So if you relax and you have fun with me and are humorous and friendly and loving, that to me feels like an attack because I know I don't deserve it. Mm. So you can't win. And I find myself getting angry at you, Uh which may feel sort of mysterious to you seeing as, you thought you were having a good time and being nice. I thought I was being warm and loving. Right. Right. You have your nerve. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so let, let me just say this back to you to make sure I get this. So the addict, let's call him the alcoholic for the sake of keeping it simple, lies about their drinking. The partner doesn't know the lie, at least in the beginning maybe. It behaves in a loving way, and even then the addict feels threatened because... It feels like they're loving a false person that's not them. That's right. They don't, they're pretending to be somebody they know they're not. Right. And they're also giving the other pow- person the power to essentially drive them out of themselves. Because that person could pretend explode. to be this other person. And of course, then they're going to resent anybody who has that kind of power. Now, wait a second. So is the power to expose the lie or the power to make them feel false? Yes. Both. Okay. Yeah, and and uh, and yeah, and it doesn't matter whether they ever know 
that the person lied or not. Because all of this takes place between parts within the person who is suffering from the addiction. I see. It's their internal struggle that's going on. And, and the other person is just essentially uh, a player in their game. And, they, and may not know they're a player in the game. In fact, you know, very often doesn't. So let me ask, because I get this question a lot. So for the family member who loves someone with an addiction and who begins to understand that the addiction is truly based in shame, as you've explained, how can the family member be helpful? How can they be loving in a way that actually matters? Um, you know, it, it, the pro it is very hard for them to do that. I mean, one thing they need to know uh, that it, w w w that's useful is that if they talk about what's going on, they need to talk about themselves and their experience of it and not talk about the other person or expose their theories of why the other person is doing what they're doing. Hmm. So they can talk about the fact that when this other person drinks, they feel frightened and they feel cut off from them and they feel like a bottle has just sort of landed between the two of them and rather than being able to talk to the other person, they have to talk to this bottle instead. And they feel that, uh, you know, that they, they're, they're, you know, but it's what's how they feel. Mm -hmm. And not talk about what the other person is doing or why they think the other person is doing it. Right. I don't know whether that'll help, but it gives them a chance to express themselves without it being absolutely guaranteed that the other person is going to hear that as an attack on them and therefore respond from protective parts who are listening to them to make them wrong. Right, and when you say an attack on them, it sounds like you also meant before an attack on their supply, that they might That's be cut true. off from it's the very thing. It's an attack on their character, on their sense of innocence, which is, not, you know, which is very vulnerable. And it's also possibly an attack on, on their primary relationship, because essentially every addict is having an affair with this. Uh, on whoever they're in relationship with. And, and, and they prefer the, this addictive relationship. It's not that they prefer it. They are more loyal to it than they are to any human relationship. And that's because it gave them, at, at one point, some relief from their shame. Right. And, and, but it, as you said, it generates more pain, which needs the more relief, which generates more pain, which needs more relief, which is one of the reasons it keeps getting worse. Right. I, I can understand that. And so the opposite of addiction is relationship. And that's, you know, the 12-step programs, although they have, you know, a lot of things about them that make them hard for addicts to use effectively, what they're essentially doing is creating room for the person inside themselves and helping the person be in relationships that, that, uh, that don't, aren't either an or relationships with their addictive uh, medium, whatever it is, alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, whatever it is. Let, I'm going to ask you to be a little more specific, because a moment ago you said that addiction is a kind of relationship. Yeah. So the alternative to that must be a different kind of relationship. Yeah, the alternative is a relationship uh, which has, you know, other people in it. <laughs> in other words, a two -person if you're relationship. addicted to a person... Yeah. Uh, a relationship with a person like, you know, the woman who is addicted to the man who beats her up and she can't leave him. Yep. 
that's a classic. Um, her addiction is not with this man. In other words, it's not a personal relationship. They don't share personal things. Mm-hmm. It's, a re- it's a relationship with an idea of having a husband, being loved, being needed. It's not a personal relationship. The Who the actual man is and how he expresses himself is not relevant. She's just uh, a real relationship, which is that involves human beings communicating with each other, is very different from that. It's, in fact, the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, one of the ways you, you know, you address these kind of abusive relationships is by facilitating the kind of communication that turns it into a real relationship. And and say, I, I'm going to pause a minute just to let people know this is Safe Space. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward inter- interviewing Mike Elkin, a family therapist on the subject of addictions. And we're talking about the quality of a relationship that is non-addictive, that is in fact an antidote to an addictive relationship. And say more about that. Mike, are you there? Can you hear me? I am. Yeah, so I'm asking you about um, what are the qualities of a relationship that is not an addictive one? Well, uh, the qualities are, first of all, that it's possible in a real relationship to talk about and to communicate about the parts of you you're not proud of. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you go into a bar and you hear men talk, uh, they talk about what they're good at, what they know a lot about. They're experts. They, they, there's a strong need to be right. They get into arguments. They make bets because who's right is very important. Right. Okay. If you went to an AA meeting, what you hear people talk about are the struggles they're having, uh, the things they're having trouble with, and also the things they're proud of and that they've done that they're proud of, but with the understanding that, you know, there are parts of them that are sort of making that hard for them. So there's room for all of them in that relationship. In the bar room, there's only room for the parts of me that are powerful and confident and knowledgeable and successful. Yeah, so... And I've got to hide everybody else. This comes back to where we started, where you were talking about the belief in our culture that we need to be in control and that that's part of what makes us good. Right. And in a, in a con- and we need to be right, which is another version of being in control. Yes, and I want to ask you a little bit about something you've said before, that alcoholism is not a disease, it is a religion. And right. I'd like to ask you to tell me more about that and how that connects to what we yeah, have to hide. I, you know, I've been, I've been working in, in the field for a very long time, and, you know, a real breakthrough happened in the 1930s when... Uh, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W. got together and they said they developed a program uh, with the assumption that rather than being a character disorder or a moral failing, alcoholism was a disease, which meant that the people who were drinking alcoholically weren't bad, they were sick. Right. Which is a good idea because nobody knows how to turn a bad person into a good person. But, you know, there's a lot of hope to you can turn a sick person into a well person. Although I would say that some religions would suggest that they do have the ability to help turn someone into a, from a bad person to uh, a good person. Rather than get into that, you <laughs> yes. know, I mean, that's something that I have 
debated and talked about at times. But uh, they may say that, but they say that in order, uh, you know, in order to do that, you have to do an awful lot of things that <laughs> people don't do. But be that as it may, uh, it became a solvable problem. I see. By calling it a disease and They're calling it a disease. Okay. And it's called the disease theory of alcohol. And if you know, you're a physician, so you're aware that it's at best, you know, it's, it's a stretch mm-hmm. to call addiction a disease in the way you're taught to think about disease in a medical school. Yes. Okay. But it was a metaphor that I think that was very useful in its time. What I found after working with this for many years is a much better way for me to think about it in order to be helpful to people who are suffering from addictive relationships is to think of the addiction as a religion mm-hmm. rather than a disease. So what does that mean? And a religion is a thought system that, has, that, that basically addresses two issues. And one issue is, what is a good person? And the other issue is, what is our relationship to a higher power? Okay. Like Judaism, Catholicism, Protestantism, uh, Communism, uh, material, all of those are essentially thought systems that address those, those uh, issues. Okay. Okay. And alcoholism, I think, is also a thought system. I call it alcoholism, but it can be addictionism. Or another friend of mine said maybe you should call it holism because if you call it alcoholism, you think, well, it's only alcohol we're talking about. Right. And I'm talking about every addictive relationship. And it's a thought system which essentially says a good person is someone who has no, who doesn't make mistakes, who is always equal to every situation, uh, who is never frightened or greedy or confused or small-minded, uh, who does the right thing, who thinks the right thing, and if, uh, and if they don't do that, nobody ever finds out that they don't. Mm-hmm. If, if they don't do like that, they instance, hide it. You know, it's not, it goes, we have a president who has said, basically, in his eight years in office, he has not made any mistakes. <laughs> uh-huh. See, so I would say, here's a guy who's pretty devoutly attached to this thought system. Right. So he believes that, you know, his that that his humanness has not led to him doing anything that he, if he had to do over again, would do differently. Okay. Okay. And its relationship to your relationship is to a, to a higher power is there shouldn't be a higher power. There shouldn't be anything stronger, smarter, more capable. Uh, more virtuous, more powerful than you. You have to be number one. Mm. There's the champion and the losers. So are you saying, and we have just a couple minutes, Mike, but are you saying that if I believe these things, that will lead me to drink? I'm saying if you believe these things, then there's no room inside you for you. In other words, there's no room for the parts of you that make mistakes, are afraid, uh are jealous, are greedy, are, you know. Yes. And uh, I myself notice that I have parts just like that. <laughs> There's no room for them. Every yes. time those parts are referred to or exposed or seen, yes. you feel shame. Yes. So it, it makes it very tempting for parts of you 
to look for something that will give them a sense of relieving that shame. Uh-huh, right. And it, it will, allow, it will um, tempt them to become very attached to anything that seems to do that. So I would say somebody with that thought system is very, very vulnerable to getting into an addictive relationship with something. Right. And yet you started out the show by saying that all of us have parts that feel defective. That's right. So all of us at some level are vulnerable. Yes, that's true. And so for the people but the who... more the more you believe it's okay to be a good person and have parts that feel defective, that make mistakes, that feel clumsy or feel... The less likely it is that you're going to need relief at the level that an addict is willing to pay for relief. Yes. So in some way, the antidote to shame is self-acceptance. That's right. I mean, if you look at the 12 steps, say, of, of 12 step programs, they're essentially a path out of this, which is the fourth and fifth step is to take a fearless inventory of yourself, which means to actually think about the things about you that you don't like. Yep. And then the fifth step, which is the killer, is to share that list with some another human being. Right. Which is an enormous blasphemy in the religion of alcoholism is <laughs> to say to somebody else, you know, there's this part of myself that I don't like and I feel ashamed of. Or I did something that I think was really dishonest and small-minded. Yes. Or selfish or cowardly or or mean. And yet that is precisely your ticket to freedom, as you're, as you're suggesting. That's right. Yeah. The truth, in fact, does make you free, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> as someone once said. Mike, we're going to have to wrap up. I want to thank you so much for coming out to this, the first show of, of Safe Space. I want to recommend to listeners your book, Families Under the Influence, which can be obtained under Amazon.com. And uh, I really appreciate what, what you had to say, and I learned a lot from you, Mike. Well, thanks for, I really feel honored in being asked to be the first uh, guest on your show, and uh, I know it's going to be a great success, and I, you know, it, it's much easier to go blah, blah, blah when you're not actually seeing another human being in front of you, so I just talked and talked, but uh, thanks an awful lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. Ann. All righty. I wish you well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>